1: Right now at Safeway, get your skin winter-ready with big savings on all your favorite skincare products. Shop for deals on items like Gillette Mach 3 razors, Gillette Labs razors and blades, Venus razors and blades, and native shampoo, conditioner, and body wash. Plus, shop the buy two, get one free baking event and save on items like selected varieties of handy foil and good cook pans. Offer expires December 26th. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for full offer details.
3: Listening to pop, the history makers with me, Steve Blame. I don't know if it's just the second that incredible baseline kicks in, but the power from Snap was an assured hit from the moment it launched in 1990, and today is a staple of the advertising industry. It's used to promote products as varied as Greek yogurt, Giorgio Armani, Smirnoff vodka, and even Walmart. Now, the people behind Snap were producers Luca Anzolotti and Mikel Munzing, creatives with a strong sense of business. In part one of this podcast, Mikel talks about his personal route to that world hit, The Power. Now, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to my steady page. It's easy to find. Just type into Google, pop the history makers and steadyhq.com or follow me on Instagram, steve.blame. So, Mikael, I don't know how long it's been since we've actually seen each other, but I think it was probably 96. But I remember uh, one of the best weekends of my life was in uh, Ibiza, where you had a house and also where you had a boat. Yes, and we did an interview on the boat. We did an interview on the boat. Yeah, it was any yeah. excuse to have fun, really. But that boat was called The Power. We'll come to that later. Um, yeah, it's brilliant to see you again. But I want to sort of start off by taking you back and asking you about your early memories of childhood and how your up- upbringing was. And also, in terms of the music landscape in Germany, what was there for pop music in that era. You're, you're the, roughly the same age as me, I think three or four years older. Not that we're going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So how far you want me to go back? <laughs> well, I want to go back to your first memory. I mean, in, in terms of what your parents, music your parents listened to, and then of course, hey. what triggered your interest in music?
2: Yeah, my, my father was a jazz fan. So when I grew up, I was um, confronted with Stan Gatz, Miles Davis. He, he, he heard, let's say, some commercial jazz, you know, because some, somehow there's really weird jazz music existing. So but uh, I grew up with all these uh, Astrid Gilberto and, and uh, Dave Rubik, I don't know, all these, these jazz music. And um, I find then when I, I think when I was 11 or 12, I bought my first record, what was the Elvis Presley record, you know, and uh, my father called it, my grandfather called it terrible noise. You know, he said, "This is terrible noise." And um, yeah, and, and I think later when when uh, I must I must say I was a Beatles fan. You know, <laughs> I, I loved the Beatles, I loved the songs and the music. And when the Beatles came out, it was really such a massive uh, a push. You know, because there we could also separate from the other gener- generations. You know, because we had our own music. And um, yeah, it's, like I said, my grandfather, he had a radio uh, at home and I always, you listen to some stations and he came in and he immediately turned it away, you know, and he said it's, uh, it's noise and it's this, uh, they called it gamla, this is people with long hair, you know, <laughs> so yeah, so whatever, but um, were from you there, up, coming... Were you
3: brought up by your grandfather?
2: No, no, but yeah, we we were we were spending uh, uh, I think two three years me and my brother with my grandparents because my mother was very sick at this time, and um, yeah, he he, uh, I had a very wild childhood at this time, you know. Uh, so we what were not it? really What's wild.
3: What do you what do you mean wild? Yeah, we were not really educated at this
2: time. My grandmother, she was I think two boys. It was too much for her. My grandfather, he taught me like uh, you know ho- uh, like building things he 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 had some some really nice basement with a lot of tools and he always built something you know so uh, i i still kept this my whole life building things together so everything you know uh, from a I- ikea closet to the car i fixed by myself
3: so building things i mean building a track building building music building Everything probably in, in to that extent. Do you think that uh, your drive to be successful came from that period? Have you ever thought about where it came from? Um, I think
2: I was uh, when I started to find other music, there was not so driven by medias, you know, like, like uh, my, my very first record except Beatles was, a, was a Elton John, John Yellow Brick Road. And this really brought me to much more music. It opened the gate for you know very very wide uh, 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 um, you know music uh, uh, and then, like i said i yeah, you know how it is you 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 pick out the songs uh, and then later your neighbor hear it or your friends hear it, but you had it before, and you you listen to it before, so you get the feeling that you have some kind of uh, taste and that you can somehow control yourself and this was the same when I started DJing I mean I went in the 70s to New York and uh, my friend was a doorman no he he brought coffee and and water to the doorman so I could get in in studio 54 and I was so impressed
3: by this disco vibes how old were you Hmm? how old were you at that time
2: I was uh, 20,
3: 24, 24. So you were a 24-year-old guy from Germany. I'm not going to say you were green, as in, <laughs> <laughs> and, but you, you know, I mean, 24, you come from Germany, you go go to New York, and you go into Studio 54. It must have been a bit of a shock. Yeah, I mean, it was, wow.
2: You know, sometimes things happen so fast, so you, you take it as normal. You know, we, we lived at 80th Street, you could not go to Central Park, uh, you could not uh, uh, go two, two or three streets further, but uh, if, you, if you went down, there was a, a complete new life going on, you know, and I think at this time, all the disco vibes, everything came. So I left New York and I went to Israel, to Tel Aviv, and I met some guy, he had a piano bar. And I told him, I said, wow, this place is so cool. We could make a nice club here. And he said, what is a club? What is a disco? And I said, yeah, people spilling records and dancing. And he asked me, are there girls coming? (laughs) And I said, yes, there are tons of girls coming. (laughs) And so he decided, uh, you know, let me change the bar into a disco club. And uh, it was very successful. It was the very first uh, disco in Tel Aviv. Never before people heard something, it was super successful. I brought a lot of Studio 54 wipes there, like doorman, like like really crazy door. So people had never an idea why they could not get it. So I learned this from Studio 54, that there can't be a system. You know, they just let people in or not. So people was always confused. I thought, okay, maybe I have to change the dress. Maybe I have to do this. But it's, it was just, you know, uh, it, the idea was to make them uh, want to be there want to come there and when i came back from so so i i started spinning for the first time in in my own club at this time and uh, it was very what, what great music time. did you play back then oh at the copa copacabana barry manilow <laughs> you know all these party music all these these music with people were just uh, you know building lines and was jumping to the club and everything there was every day was a major party and um, in yeah and then sadly there was uh, some terror attacks happening so I left Tel Aviv sold a part of my club and I came to Germany and at this time they just opened uh, Dorian Cray. this was this club okay, just, I'll come to
3: because that's probably the, the point uh, where you met Luca Anzalotti okay. but I just want to mention you, you, you mentioned Elton John and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and Elton, at that point, was quite experimental on his albums. There was music of very different style. It wasn't just the mainstream Elton hits. It had things like Funeral for a Friend or, you know, he had music on his albums, which was very different. Was that something that also influenced you, this idea that the sounds could be very different and they didn't have to be just conventional?
2: No, I I think what, what I was so impressed of was the songwriting, you know. And, and to the way he wrote the song and the way the, the, the lyrics fit to the music and everything was for me very perfect. And also uh, not it, look if you look to Beatles, the, the songs are pretty much the same about love. They have these nice harmonies. They are you know and, and you have but, but Elton John he had this different music on one album different songs what triggers completely dif- different emotions you know and that's why I was very impressed
3: about this situation and then so yeah and also that was a partnership that was a, you know Elton John as writing the songs and Bernie Taupin writing the lyrics so still let's one take of my you favorite. to Germany and your partner Luca Anzolotti, in the in the in the in music um I presume you met him in Dorian Gray can you describe Dorian Gray to me first of all
2: it was, I think, for Germany or for Europe, it was really disco time. I mean, look, now everybody grow up with dancing, with clubs, with spinning. But at this time, everybody made the same experience at the same time. Even if you was 18, it was 40, it was 30. It was the first time you lived disco time. And that's why it was so massive. You know, it, it was for everybody something It, it, it you, you get addicted. You just go there and the vibes and, and they had a... Brilliant sound system uh, from the same guy who did the sound system in Studio 54. They also saw saw Studio 54 and they did a copy. Not that big, not that high, but it was really, really massive. And I remember when we came there for the first time, we saw people uh, standing around the corner and was looking around the corner and we were thinking, what are they doing there? And we find out that they was checking the doorman and they wanted to find out in what kind of mood they are because, and then they, they really had need some courage to go there because they was afraid to send away, you know, and we went there and so, surprisingly, a friend of mine, he was a doorman. So whoop, I was in, <laughs> you know, and believe me, we were there every day. Every day, every day. It's unbelievable. It was every day full. It was every day party. And you could not have something better in your life at this time. All my friends, or the girls and the boys, everybody was there. And uh, you, you were at home on Monday and you think, what are you doing? Let's go. <laughs> and you go again, you know. And when, when I started to, to later to spin in Dorian Gray in 82, it was still open every day. And it was every day full. And we, we started in, in, let's say, nine o'clock in the evening where people was waiting that you open as a DJ the dance floor. Everybody was sitting. The, the place was already packed and full. And then we started the first song and they jumped on the dance floor and the dance floor was buzzing until 11, 12 the next morning. You know, And this
3: is, this is where I learned to DJ you know, for 12 hours and longer. And it's that, is that the place where you also met Luca? Can you remember the moment yes. that you met him? And can yes. you also tell me what the commonalities are between you and him or what they were at that time, let's say?
2: Okay, we, we met uh, between two friends and um, Luca was spinning in a very small club, like a celebrity club. And uh, he, he had another music program because in a big club, you have more, you know, boom, boom <laughs> music. And he had more this kind of, uh, yeah, uh, more melodic music. But we met, we are friends, we liked each other. And we wanted to open a radio station. This was our target. So we, at this time, private radio stations was available, was allowed in Germany, and we said, okay, let's open a radio station. And we started to working on it. At the same time, I was uh, buying some equipment, you know, like, like uh, a truck, uh, like synthesizers and drum machine, and I started to create my own music. And Luca came, and we were sitting together, and we created music together. It was just happening, you know? So... We were sitting, let's say every time when we had free time, we were sitting at, at my apartment and uh, we spent every money in synthesizers and drum machines and everything. And we just and I was going in the evening to the club and I run the tape and I played my music there.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So, to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, you get 30, you get 20, 20, 20, get, 20, 20 get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
0: switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: You know, it was really, so you have a feeling and it was often happened that people came and they asked me and I said, what did you play there just now? You know, and as a DJ, you know, when people ask you well, what you're playing, that they like it and they want to buy it,
3: you know. So when was the moment that the DJ became a producer? Was there a particular moment or did that really sort of just cross naturally from one to the other?
2: No, it was a decision. I mean, we started in 86. Uh, we met Sven, Sven Fate, And we, we hang out together. He, he was also, uh, I gave him uh, some kind of platform in Dorian Gray. He was spinning in the small club. I was making, so he was becoming somehow famous in Frankfurt. Good looking guy, funny, good dancer. And we said, come on, let's make a record together. And you will be the star. So it was the way, so we rented a studio and we had no idea how to make, to produce music. But uh, I mean, we did uh, music uh, uh, with, let's say, equipment at home, but this was a different thing. We went to a professional studio, we paid every day 200 bucks or something, and we did a record with Sven. And at the same time, we said, okay, now we need a video. And we just took a camera and we filmed the video by itself. This first song, by the way, called Bad News. And it's off, and it's a very funny video because all our friends are in the video, you know. And uh, it, it and, and at the same time, I changed the club. So there was a new club opening in Frankfurt called the Music Hall, and they really want me to work there. So I like, at the end they offered me so much that I said, "Okay, I will come." <laughs> and uh, it was very difficult because the, the place was more like. Uh, uh, like a stadium, you know, the dance floor was very in the middle. It was centered. And if you made any mistake, the dance floor was empty. So, and people was really afraid to go back to the to the dance floor. So I learned a lot at this time that the dance floor can be very sensible in, in such a place. And uh, yeah, and at the same time, every night, every free time making music and there was the moment coming, I said, okay, we have to decide uh, who, what do we want? And uh, at this time, it was me, Sven, and Luca. And I said, I want to become a music producer. So I will stop spinning. I have no time for this anymore. I will go full time. And we find some guy, he financed the music studio, and Sven decided uh, to stay as a DJ. You know, And this music so- studio was
3: in Offenbach? Was that the first music studio? Yes,
2: yes. There later, we had all our companies and everything. So we, we, we had this sound studio. We built everything by ourselves, and it was in the office. So uh, sometimes when we started to make music in the daytime, people from the neighbors came, and they asked us to slow down. You know. So uh, this is where you start to work at night. You know? <laughs> so you say, okay, <laughs> let's, let's wait when they're all home, and we can really make noise. And the funny thing is that right on the windows, uh, there was a, it, it, it basically we rented an office space and we turned it into a music studio. And all our friends came, they hang out there. Sometimes when we made music, they just sit on the couch and they listen to what we are doing there. And sometimes they did not understand. They said, why you always play the same part? You know, we hear it now for hours. And we said, because it's not perfect, we have to change a little bit here and there. And later we find out that people were outside on the parking space, going there and listen what we did there. You know, it's crazy. Later, some people told me, said, you know, when we were young, we, you, we know that you had this music studio there and we were all fans and we wanted to become music producers. So we went to this parking place and we could hear the music you did in the music studio just right across, outside the windows, you know.
3: You're listening to Pop, The History Makers with me, Steve Blame.
2: Luca is more on, on the drum side, more on uh, um, the rhythm and straightforward. I'm more on, on harmonies and music. But uh, th- important is that you can surprise the other with some, something what you do. And Luca always surprised me. He did sometimes things I, I could not do. You know what I mean? I was thinking, wow, how you did this? How you came up with this? Because I had never the idea or never, uh, uh, you know, w- would try this out. It was also a lot of technique what we used at this time. So at this time, there were the first uh, sequencer programs coming out and all these things. So we tried to combine all these technique with synthesizers and with music and um, like I said, at the end, when the track is finished, I think everybody was very important to create the track.
3: How did you deal with conflict and ego in, in making music in the early days? How did you deal with that? Oh, we never had it. Look at me, we never had it. Uh, that's, uh, that's why
2: I think we, we never wanted to become musicians, because we saw, we had at the, at the early beginning, when we uh, had a studio, we had to rent the studio to make money. And sometimes people came in and they pro- they want us to produce and make music for them, you know. And so some guy came, and uh, you know, and they fighted. Uh, the band came in, and the band was fighting for the baseline. It, it, they they really they, they they had a fight in our music studio. One guy said, "Ah, your baseline is 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 McDonald's." And so somebody said, "No, and they really start to to beat each other, and we were thinking, what is going on here it's just a baseline you know give me I make you another one in five minutes and there was another story that a guy was treating us let's say two hours to adjust the snap run, you know, and we we really and, and can you make it longer? Can you make here and there two hours, two hours for one snap run. and then they left for uh, for for lunch, and they came back, and we rolled down the tape, and he said, "You changed the snare drum." You know, we were freaking out because we did not touch it even. And I took him. At this time, we had Electrica Salsa" as a really, really big hit, and I played the song to him, and I said, "Listen to the song. It does not have a snare drum. <laughs> you know, so it cannot be important." <laughs> so when, when were you so aware? At the end, we took the guy out. We said, "Take your tape, take your snare drum, and leave our studio."
3: When were you aware that the music business is a business?
2: Uh, It started when you have done a record and everybody loved the record. When we did our first big hit, it was uh, Where Are You from 16-Bit. We came with the tape uh, uh, to Dorian Gray and the DJ, we asked him to play the, the, the tape, you know, because we want to hear it in the club. And suddenly it was really like was magic everybody went to the dance floor it was crazy they have never heard the song before when the first beat started everybody goes to and the dance floor was packed and we were looking what is going on here so we said okay we need to bring this out we need vinyl at this time it was vinyl so we just made phone calls and we find a company they they manufactured the vinyl for us and uh yeah we we did the first uh, vinyls, and we just handed out sold it to some uh, record dealers, but we had on the on the back side of the record there was written logic records, what was not existing at this time, we just wrote it there, and the the phone number of our sound of our music studio, and on a certain part, the phone did not stop ringing anymore. There was always, every day, 50, 100 people calling. Yeah, I'm a dealer in Hamburg, a record dealer, I have this record here, where can I buy it? Where can we have it? And we said, okay, we are fucked. (laughs) We We have a record, what everybody wants, but what can we do? And at this time, we went to different record companies and we played a song to him and we had different experiences, you know. So we came to Sony Music at this time and they asked us, who are you? We said, yeah, we are DJs. We just made a great song. Oh, you cannot even play your instrument. We said, no, we can't, but it's music, you know. And they said, no, we don't believe it's a hit. And then we go to another. And at the, at the end, we find B&G. They liked the music and they really helped us. It was not, you know, a lot of other record companies, they try to keep you away from knowledge from the music business, but they were really teaching us it. And they came up and said, you have to do your own record label and we will distribute your record label. And that's how we said, okay, we we, we have a name. It was written already on the back. And we said, okay, we will open Logic Records.
3: You've always made very astute business decisions along the way. I've always seen you <laughs> as also... Uh you know, a business person. And opening a record label can't be, I mean, so many things can go wrong. How, how, at the start, how difficult was it to get a team that you could trust, that could work right, that you could actually form in a way in the image that you wanted to form them and for it to work? How difficult was that process?
2: Oh, it was very difficult. But on the other side, um, we, uh, I, it's all about philosophy. We said that we will respect the artists' wishes. So if they want uh, uh, their cover, we do it they, the way they want to do it. We will respect their decisions, which records they pick, which mixes they want to do and everything. This was the first thing because we were artists by ourselves. And uh, I think this was also why it became so successful because people find out we are one of them. We are not some... You know, record label, just, you know, don't take, take, take care of them. And um, so we, we hired people basically from our friend, you know, friend's area. Somebody became a video cutter. Somebody became, make, uh, make the, the phone calls and everything. But don't forget, uh, because before it was a success story, we already was three times almost bankrupt. You know, so this is, this is also part of the story, because um, when, when the first records start to become successful, we find out that we are not paid good, that we have to learn more about how much money you can make, how much deals you can do and everything. And we had to move to another level because suddenly the record label was going so fast and it was growing so fast that we will, you know, get bankrupt. This is what we find out. So we had suddenly an uh, uh, um, uh, office in London where Conrad von Löhneisen, he runs the office there, and everybody was running to Let- Logic Records and want to have their records uh, distributed with us. So there came, yeah, like, like Headway uh, came, there came um, Rosala, Yeah, and, and Get Duck, I, I, everybody came. You know, and, when, and, when and... you
3: mention about this philosophy and that you wanted to respect the artists, it sort of begs the question: Did any? Does anyone in the music industry really know what they're doing? No. <laughs> no. You're listening to Pop: The History Makers with me, Steve Blame. And that's it for part one of the story of Michael Munzing and Snap. In part two, we'll find out what happened afterwards and where Michael is in his life today. It's another fascinating tale of someone who, through one song, can pass on a legacy of financial success that could support ongoing generations of his family. I'm Steve Blaine. Don't forget to follow Connect on Instagram and also support this podcast. I'll see you next time.